Well, good morning. I'm certainly glad to be here, and, and certainly, Jim, thank you for the, uh, the introduction, and thank you for inviting me to be back again. So, but on a Saturday, and look at my brethren, wanting to come together and study God's Word together. That's impressive, and you impress me, and thank you for that. Uh, I will make some introductory, some beginning comments here. First of all, I'm very humbled to be here, and uh, because I'm a hillbilly, and, and I say that with all pride, but nevertheless, I speak like a hillbilly at times, and that means, what I mean by that is, I want to use probably words that are not uh, grammar, might be thrown out the window at times, and some of my words may be out there, but please, let that not be a distraction to the gospel, and don't let me be a hindrance to the truth. And secondly, I'm fallible. And things I say, I, I have conviction on, and, and I believe it to be true, because I think I can read it from God's Word. But nevertheless, I do realize that I, I'm always growing and learning. So what I say, I want you to take it and take it from God's Word. If it's God's Word, take hold of it. It's true. And if it's something that you think, well, Troy, you might be wrong there, I, I could be. So I just say that right up front. But God's Word is true. And let's hold on to it. And that's where I want to focus uh, our attentions. So as we think about the lesson at hand, modern problems confronting the church, there's three areas of focus that I want to look at. And that is the the idea or the uh, focus of silence of scripture, expediencies, and mercy and compassion are not in conflict with law keeping. And in order to get, before we get there, let's go back to the Old Testament. We know whatever is written aforetime is written for our learning. And what I want us to do is look at Baal worship. How many of you get a good working knowledge of Baal worship? I know, okay, that's it. And as a Phoenician god, I think over the Sidonian uh, coast area, I think is where that was originated. But nevertheless, we're going to look at that, uh, Baal worship. And how was Baal worship introduced to Israel? Israel, I'm talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, during the divided kingdom. How was Baal worship introduced into Israel, the northern kingdom, God's people? Well, we know we can go to the Bible and we can go to Ahab, uh, look at King Ahab in 1 Kings 16. And Ahab took his wife, Jezebel. Remember Jezebel? She was a daughter of Ethbel, and, that, and her father's name means with Baal. Even his very name suggested, you know, that close connection with Baal worship. And uh, Ethbel, the king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So look what Ahab did. The king of Israel, which was one of God's people, he uh, married this lady, or this woman, uh, Jezebel. And he was forbidden uh, to do that. He transgressed God's command and married this woman of the land. And not only that, but he he brought in this bell worship that her, her and her family had embraced. In 1 Kings 16.32, we see that Ahab erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So we can see that Ahab not only just kind of brought this in, he went, you know, whole hog, as we would say. He built a house, he erected an altar in the very capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. So he introduced Baal worship into the northern kingdom. But as God would have it, God would send his prophet Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, and he would confront Ahab. For this and many things. In 1 Kings 18 verse 17, it should be on the board. Ahab uh, saw Elijah and Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? So notice that. Here you have the man of God. The man of God is being accused by the person who is causing the problems. 
But this person who's calling the problem, he accuses the man of God as being the troublemaker. There's a lesson for us is that as well. Landon, you might be preaching in a you know, godless society and you'd spread the truth to people and then they would look at you, you're the troublemaker. And so that's our takeaway there. But nevertheless, let's go on. But Elijah responds, and Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandment of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. See, Elijah said, no, it's you. You have followed the Baals. Oh, oh, okay, no, no problem. Okay. All right, no problem. So what we have is Elijah... uh, Suggest a showdown. Who was the true God? And we know that in Mount Carmel. We remember that. Elijah proposed to gather all of Israel and the prophets of Baal. And they had sent and gathered them all. And they gathered at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. And Elijah suggests the test to determine the true God. And the true God be the one which answers by fire. We're all familiar with that, right? Okay, we're all familiar with that. All right. And so the Baal's prophets called on Baal from morning to evening. Was there an answer? No, there was no answer. And can you imagine the scene? You know, they're there and they were, I think, even resorted to cutting themselves and doing a whole bunch of things. But Baal did not listen to them. Why? Baal's not real. And then we see what Elijah did. Elijah calls on the true God and God lit the fire underneath the altar, even though the altar had what put on it? Water. It was saturated. And we can imagine the magnificent scene of God answering with fire and just, you know, licking up the water and the sacrifice. And I think even the stones is suggested. So, what happens after that? But first of all, think about that magnificent act that God did. He exposed Baal worship as false in a very magnificent way. This fire came down and it did all this. And it left not a single doubt. In Israel's mind, God was real, Jehovah God. And this Baal worship was false. It was nothing. And so what happens is that the, uh, Elijah said, get all the prophets of Baal. Don't let any of them escape. Don't let them escape. So the people captured all the prophets. Then Elijah led them down to the Kishon Creek, Kishon Creek and he killed them all. Can you imagine saying they were exposed to be false and God's judgment was upon them and they were all destroyed. So my question for you, or let me make the statement. So Baal worship was defeated in Israel. Right? Not exactly. See, you already know the answer. (laughs) Yeah. No, it still wasn't. They were all killed, Jim. But nevertheless, what we see in about 30 years later, we see it again. Well, let's go 30 years later, and it's still in the northern kingdom. We see Jehu. And this is when Jehu wants to destroy the worshipers of Baal. In 2 Kings 10, verse 19, it says, Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, and all his worshipers, and all his priests. And notice, let none be missing. Did he want them all? He wanted them all. And whoever is missing shall not live. So if they didn't show up, we're going to kill them. But, it says, Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. So what Jehu, did, Jehu wanted to do is let's have a feast. Let's get everybody together. It's going to be a feast of Baal. 
But he did that by cunning. He's just trying to get them together. If they didn't show up, they were to be killed. He wanted to get them all together because it goes on to say in verse 25, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, this is once they were gathered together, go in and strike them down and let not, uh, and, and, excuse me, strike them down. Let not a man escape and demolish the house. That's what he did. He demolished the house of Baal and he made it a latrine to this day. Wait a second. He made that place where they worship a latrine. What's a latrine? It's the bathroom. I, you know, that's not a pleasant place. I mean, we all, it's a needed place, but nevertheless, he made a place where they had this God worship, this false God worship. He made it a bathroom, a toilet. It's so disgusting and just repute, you know, just, uh, uh, just a place of repute. So nevertheless... He demolished the house of Baal and he made a latrine to this day. And what does it say? Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. In some versions we use the term that he annihilated, I think, or something like that. He annihilated or he decimated. He, he got rid of Baal worship from Israel. So, Baal was finally defeated in Israel. Right? It still wasn't. Because we see it again 120 years later. In Second uh, Kings chapter 17, this is one of the reasons why Israel, the northern kingdom, was destroyed. It was destroyed by, because one of the reasons was because they continued to serve Baal. In Second Kings 17, 16, Israel served Baal. And then in verse 18, it says, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. See, they continued in this idolatry. Amongst other things, David could attest that. There was other things they were doing, but still they had, uh, Baal was introduced. It was still there. They were continually engaged in it, even though that God had manifested himself that this was false. Well, Baal was finally defeated because Israel was finally destroyed. Right? By now, y'all going to say, no, I don't think I'm going to answer yes. Right? You're all smart. So... No, it still wasn't. Because we see it again a hundred years later in the southern kingdom, Judah. And so in Josiah's reform in 2 Kings 23, verse 4, and I'm dating this by the kings, by the way. We can get an idea when I say a hundred years later, whatever, it's by the dating of the kings. So in 2 Kings 23, verse 4, it says, And king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the, and the priest, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal. What? There were vessels made for Baal, the false god who has been exposed even years and hundreds of years later uh, before. And where are the vessels of Baal? They're in the temple of the living God? Are you kidding me? Yes. They're right there in the southern kingdom, right in the very temple where God's presence is. And there they are. They had vessels to Baal, even there, had penetrated even into Israel, um, Judah. And it goes on to say, He deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places, including those, and including for uh, uh, summer here, those who also burnt incense to Baal. So they were exposed and uh, deposed as well. And what I want you to get from this, and Judah, why did Judah start worshiping Baal? you thought about that? That was up in Israel, right? 
King Ahab and married that woman, Jezebel, and got introduced. But here's an interesting verse, 2 Kings 17, 19. It says, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. There's a lesson for us, brethren. When we see things being introduced that are not scriptural, Right? We see things in Scripture. We sit out there in maybe the denominational realm, or we see it getting introduced to uh, institutional brethren's realm and so forth. We can see those things migrating, and if we're not careful, we can get them introduced, and we will start seeing them in the Lord's conservative bodies of, of our Lord, and, uh, of the church, conservative bodies of our Lord. So, things like that is how they progress. So here's the points I want you to consider. First of all, as we think about Baal worship and error in general, Error is uh, presented. Somehow it gets life, it's, it's propagated, it, it's, it's presented. And then error is believed. Seems like people start, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's, let's, yeah, that's, let's, let's believe that. And so masses of people start believing certain things. And then, thanks be to God, error is usually exposed at some point. At Mount Carmel, it was exposed. you remember that? And in a very big way, no, no, that's a false way of thinking. But, and usually error, somehow somebody comes along and refutes it. And yes, it's exposed to be wrong. And then nevertheless, what we need to learn is error is then revived. Did we not see that over and over and over? It can be exposed, but then it's revived. And what we also want to get from that is error is hard to kill off then. Right? Error is hard to kill off. It is uh, resilient. It springs right back into shape. And also, another way of saying that is error bounces right back up. I don't ask you... Maybe Brother Farmer had one of these. Did you ever have one of those uh, punching things when you was a boy? Like you blow it up and had weight at the bottom? Somebody shake. You had one, David? Uh, what was it? Joe Paluka, which means nothing. You Joe Paluka, the boxer, right? Okay. I had a clown one. How clown. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So uh, I had a clown one. And so what you do with that thing, you would haul off and you'd hit that. And it would go all the way down the ground. Guess what would happen? It'd bounce right back up, right? You'd hit it again. It would bounce right back up. I don't know if they make those things. It might be too uh, mean or aggressive now for kids that have something you punch on. I don't know. But you'd hit that thing, it'd bounce right back up. Until my brother, I think he drop kicked it and busted it. I don't know. But error is that way. It bounces right back up. And we need to learn that. We can expose things that are false. And it's going to come right back up, or we need to be on guard with that. And we learned that from Baal. Now I want to transition our lesson and look at Psalm 138, verse 2, where it talks about God. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So think about that. God has exalted above all things his name and his word. And so God's name is exalted, and he does not accept a rival. Right? Like Baal. And also God's word is exalted and he does not accept a rival, a perverted gospel or a perverted message, a changed message. So what we want to look at in our time remaining is just like the points on Baal worship, the attack on how to derive proper Bible authority has been presented. There's people who try to undermine what the Bible says and try to say, no, you don't have to look at the Bible that way and thus undermining God's authority through the Scripture. And that is presented and people believe those false concepts. But nevertheless, thanks be to God, there are people who have brilliantly exposed those things and no, that's incorrect way of thinking. 
and uh, shown it to be false, not a proper way to derive authority, and then nevertheless, those same false ways of looking at it are then revived, and they will crop up from time to time. And our three areas of focus, again, in our time remaining is silence of scriptures, expediencies, and mercy and compassion not in conflict with law keeping. And what I want to get you to this, modern problems confronting the church is actually the same old problems confronting the church. The same, uh, uh, how do we go to a lost and dying world? It's actually the same message that Paul used years and years ago. So really, it's the same things. But let's go on. I think it's appropriate for us to look at silence of the Scripture. And by that, we're all familiar with Hebrews chapter 7, I think 12 through 14, and where it says, The priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he who these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe of Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. So we know that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, Judah, tribe of Judah. But Jesus was a high priest, right? And according to this verse about Judah, Moses spoke nothing about the priesthood coming from Judah, but Jesus was in fact a high priest. So of necessity, there was a change of the law. See, the Bible didn't, in the Old Testament, it specified who, what, what tribe the priests were to come from. And once God specifies, that excluded those other tribes. And since Jesus was a high priest, which there had to be a change of law, of necessity, that would be the case. That's logic. And then also in 2 Chronicles 26, 18, it talks about the priest that withstood the king at this point, Uzziah. And they said, Uzziah, it is, uh, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong. See, he was from the wrong tribe. And he was doing this. And they confronted him. They said, you have done wrong. Because God had specified which tribe. And therefore, he was not from that. And so he had done wrong. And what we want to look at is there's really two mindsets when it comes to silence of the Scripture. And I'm not really happy over that term, silence of Scripture. But that's the term people use for this concept. So I'm just using that same handle. But what I want to say is God is not silent. He does specify and in those areas that he does specify, that excludes the other options. But people refer to this concept as silence, so I am too this morning. So people have two mindsets, and they look at this uh, silence, and they view it as permissive. If God didn't say you can't do it, therefore you can do it. And so you're at liberty to do what is not outright condemned. And then uh, those like myself would view silence as prohibitive. We're forbidden to act without authority. When God specifies what to do, that excludes the other options. And again, my scriptural references for these two points to, to make uh, which mindset that I uh, uh, adhere to. And, but let's go back in time. These attitudes towards silence of scripture was in the very Reformation movement. Everybody kind of familiar with the Reformation movement? What is it, Jim? Time period in American history where... No, that's restoration. We're going back oh, a little Reformation. bit. Reformation. You're about Martin Luther. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Very good. All right, you're exactly right, so we're just going to put that on board. Reformation, going back a little bit uh, before that, we refer to that people trying to reform Catholicism and so forth, which is a dominant world religion at that time, and it as in the, and under the umbrella of Christianity. Okay, where the Bible is silent, where God has not spoken, we are at liberty to act as we think best. Thus, silence gives freedom to act. That's what Martin Luther, as you alluded to, the reformer, said. 
And so that was the idea. Hey, God didn't specifically say you can't do this, therefore we can do all this. However, what I want you to realize, this mindset, these, alter, these two different mindsets were even present back then because a contemporary of Martin Luther was a, ma- a reformer by the name of Urich uh, Zwingli. And how many of y'all kind of heard of him? I think some of you, most of you have. And he had the idea where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. We can do only those things which the Lord authorized. This Swiss reformer said that. So these competing ideas were there even back then in the Reformation uh, period. So let's think about that just a second. Where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. Who does that sound a lot like from the Restoration Movement? Yeah, yeah, the Campbells and so forth. What I want you to get is those, like Alexander Campbell and, and, and that family, that was not new concepts they came up with. You know, that's, that even goes back even before. Anybody who is trying to derive proper Bible authority was viewing these concepts. And, of course, they make the history books because we're familiar well, with them. But also during that same, uh, uh, let's go to, uh, well, keep going here, uh, to the Restoration Movement. Jim, now we're back up to the rest, of, not Reformation, but we're in the Restoration Movement of the 1800s with Alexander Campbell and so forth. It says the church-supported society uh, was introduced and what we have is the advocates acted upon the silence of the Scripture, which they assume left the churches free and unshackled by apostolic authority. And so that was the mindset. And Campbell said, hey, we can't do this. You know, and, but there were others. But these errors divided the efforts of the restoration movement. And right over in Paris, right? Much of the restoration, a lot of that stuff took place over there. And so a lot of this was, people were thinking about these things. Is this prohibitive or is it restrictive? And uh, I mean, prohibitive and restrictive, or is it just leave it open to do what we want to do? And what I want you to get is that these errors divided the restoration movement. And those who felt like you could do more than what, you know, silence, you know, the Bible didn't say you can't do that, therefore it opened the door, we can do more. And these, that mindset led on to form different and distinct groups, such as the Christian church and the disciples of Christ. And also during that same time period, we see like the Christian church and disciples of Christ, which they believe silence was permissive. The Bible didn't say you can't do it. Therefore, we see missionary societies, instrumental music, and things like that was introduced. You say, Troy, why are we talking about that? Because I've worshipped with people in non-institutional bodies of Christ and having conversation with them. They say, well, I'm not sure about instrumental music because after all, the Bible doesn't say you can't do it. That mindset is still very much alive in people. And so I just want us to be on guard about that. But, uh, uh, you know, churches of Christ, uh, when I say church of Christ, I'm using this as uh, conservative brethren or people just want to, and I really don't like terms like conservative and liberal. I'm using that just to convey thought here. Because people understand usually what those things mean. But nevertheless, uh, sound bodies of Christ, I think they view silence as restrictive. And so innovations rejected as the pattern in the New Testament was followed strictly. And that's what was going on. But that's in the 1800s. Let's go 100 years later. Let's go to the 1950s. What happened in the 1950s? My parents were born. Hey, good deal. <laughs> they look mu- they li- they're mu- much younger. They look, they look much younger. A lot of these same errors reappeared. Remember bell worship, how things just seem to come back up? 
Same thing. There was big debates, and these areas included church cooperation through a central sponsoring church arrangement and all these things. And basically, once again, the problem as before was the advocates acted upon silence of the scriptures. So like Baal worship, it, you know, props up, it comes back up. And so we need to be on guard these same things. Can people can try to have new innovations? And they say, well, the Bible doesn't say you can't do it. But I'm saying, brethren, where God has spoken and gave specifics, that leaves the other options off the table. All right. So let's use this. Let's talk about, uh, let's look at Noah, for example. We're all familiar with Noah. What did he build? An ark, right? And he had specific authority. And some commands are limited to these specified options. For example, Noah had to use what type of wood? King James. Gopher wood, maybe modern translations use something else. What is gopher wood, by the way? I have no idea. Yes, yeah, okay. I'll have to ask him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> gopher wood. And, you know, as a kid, I'd always say, yeah, oh, yeah, that means, hey, go over here, go for that one, and go for that mountain. No, that's not it. All right. Noah had to use gopher wood, right? He was limited that one option. He couldn't use, what, oak or something else, <coughs> really, right? All right, Noah had to put a single door. He was limited to that one option. Noah had to build an ark. He was limited to that one option. It wasn't a you know, metal aircraft. You know, okay. It had to be a wooden structure that God specified. So you all get that, right? You all get that. Silence. Notice that God did not have to forbid the other options when he gave specific authority. When God said, go for wood, that excluded everything else. Well, I think we grasp those things. And... Uh, and we and go on, we can look at burning of incense. How did it... Oh, by the way, you all familiar with Leviticus uh, 16, 12, and 13? Leviticus 16, 12, and 13 talks about that this was a priest that would take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls. How many? Two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. See how those specifics were giving? Two handfuls. And uh, it was told from what were the source, right, where to get the fire. But what happened in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Bayou? You all know the story. If you're here on a Saturday morning, I think you know these stories. History, this history. What did they do? Someone said it. Strange fire. They, could a priest use burning coals other than those from the altar? Now, see, that tells us that. Uh, when we look at Nadab and Bayou from Leviticus 10, God did not have to specifically forbid all the other fires since he said which fire was acceptable. Therefore, when God gives a specific, uh, a specific authority, then his silence is the same as forbidding other options. And here's what I want you to get from this. God considers the way we obey or disobey his commands to be directly related to how we honor and that's key for us. We want to love God enough and respect Him enough. We're, God, this is what you said. We're going to do it. Okay. We could look at a whole bunch of other things. Time will not permit. But, you know, just like praise. God's a command. That's a very general command. God wants us to praise Him. However, uh, it's very specific, though, in Ephesians 5.19, uh, when God talks about the music we are to have, it's instrumental. Praise Him uh, with uh, our voices. And therefore, we are to sing. That is very specific. We understand the generic and the general. When God gives the specific, then that excludes the other options. So, we looked at silence of Scripture, and we saw why that's relevant, I hope. 
Because still, that's the mindset that we have to encounter with people from time to time. In a loving way, we need to try to show them. And I really love Noah and uh, because I think people grasp that really well. But now let's look at expediencies because that's another area I think that will prop up from time to time when people try to have innovations. Because remember, God's exalted His name and His word and people have perverted the word, and I think one way they do that is expediency. Say, and what does expedience mean? It's a means to an end. And so men have sought to justify a whole bunch of things under expediency. Hey, let's build us a big gymnasium for sports and so forth from the Lord's money. And because it's an expedient way, we can get them here. And then we can give them Bible tracts or talk to them about the Bible and so forth. So they would bring in something, an added element into it, and they will use expediencies as uh, for that very reason. Think of the end justifies the means. But that's simply not so. And we know Matthew chapter 7 and verse uh, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And he goes on to say, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? And do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So despite the fact they did all these great things, they were actually working, what did it say, Stephen? Lawlessness. They were breaking what God had said. So it is important for us to do it the way God says. And so in order for a thing to be scripturally expedient, it must accomplish God's will, and it also must harmonize with His Word. An expediency must be lawful. That's what I want to get at. It must be authorized by the lawgiver. You remember 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, and like uh, some translations will have expedient that verse, and as you know, others uh, will not. But in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 12, it says, All things are lawful to me, Paul says, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly and belly for meats, but God shall bring to naught both it and them. Let's think about meat since that's in that context there as we think about expediency. And as you know that um, is eating of meats, is that lawful? Absolutely. I hope to partake of some just in a few minutes here. And so we can eat meats. You know, all things are sanctified by the word of God and prayer, eating, so forth. But you remember what Paul said. So what we have, eating meats, is a lawful thing. However, Paul said later in verse, uh, chapter 8 and verse 13, he said he would not eat meat if it caused his brother to do what? Stumble or fall or something like that. If it was going to be an issue to make his brother stumble or fall, he would not eat meat. See, eating meats is lawful. And so what expedience does, it takes something that's lawful and even narrows it down a little bit more. Because it may be lawful for me to do this, but I won't do it because there might be a reason not to do so. So expedience is a limit on, otherwise, on what otherwise is authorized. It is never a source of authority. You can't build a gymnasium for the Lord's money and say expediency. Expediency is limited what's already there. We're going to try to illustrate that. Again, I love Noah. I love it. I think it, it, it is so good and applicable to a lot of these concepts. You remember in Genesis 6, Noah was told to build an ark, a gopher wood. I want to ask you a question. Stephen, should he uh, use an old tree or young trees? What thickness should the planks be? Should he use the local gopher wood or bring some from elsewhere? See all these questions, you know. Well, as long as what? It is what kind of wood? Gopher wood. Go for it. All right, go now. As long as it's gopher wood. 
Well, all these options were authorized. I agree with you. But not all would be expedient. Because maybe saplings probably weren't a good choice. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they would be. I, I, my thinking they wouldn't be. Uh, maybe thin planks might not make a good hull. Maybe you need to have them a little thicker. But the point is, see, it's all gopher wood. That's what God specified. And within that, then within that, we can make some choices. Some things are not good. Thin planks may not make a good hull. Importing wood may be too costly or time-consuming. It might have been gopher wood, but we might have made it cost too much when there's some local gopher wood. See, we get that concept, don't we? Expediency is limiting what's already authorized, making the best choice because we don't want it to uh, cause someone to fall or, or, or you know, transgress or so forth. So it's limiting what is already authorized. And so we can look at a number of things that we can think about expediency. And, um, you know, that's why under singing we can have a songbook. It helps us to expedite the command to sing. Let me ask you a question. What if there's a rural congregation somewhere, and I've preached at many, and I've preached at many, maybe one or two people before up in eastern Kentucky. Ten Town. I don't know if you ever heard of Ten Town. And so at Ten Town, let's say back years ago, I want what we have at East End. A PowerPoint projector, and some people don't even have that today, David. <laughs> we talked offline. Don't have any at all. Yeah, exactly. And so, and at East End, we have the song service. It's projected up on the screen. If you've been there, you, you saw that the songs are projected up. Well, what about a ten I was up there, and we say that it's scriptural because it helps us to expedite song service. What if I was to say, okay, at ten ten, we need to have a PowerPoint projector up there. And that thing cost us, let's say, I don't know, $2,000. And with French, uh, I think you have to pay fees on that thing too, with uh, copyrights and all this stuff, ongoing fee. But there's only two people or three people or five people that actually worship there. And they don't really have the money to spend $2,000 on a PowerPoint. See, would that be expedient to put that in, in that location when they don't really don't have the money for it or something other? Is it a scriptural thing? It could. And we have that. Yeah, it helps us expedite songs, just like a songbook. But see, it wouldn't be expedient in that circumstances. It may be lawful, but it may not be expedient. See, that's what expediency is. It helps us to determine, even in the realm of what is lawful, on what to do. But notice, there's a totally different thing when you have an addition. A songbook is an expedient. If I bring in an instrument of music, that is an addition. That is something that goes beyond what is authorized. It's real important for us to understand these concepts because we, we worship, possibly, with people from, from time to time who will have questions and they don't understand these distinctions. And that can cause people to create doubt. And if that doubt is not dealt with appropriately, then it can cause issues where they actually will fall away. And, I've, and sadly, I've seen that happen as well. Our last area of focus is mercy and compassion are not in conflict with law uh, keeping. So let's look at that quickly. Um, are there certain circumstances where the need for authority can be disregarded? Matthew 12 is often cited by some today suggesting that in certain situations the law of God can be set aside for a compassionate purpose. And you remember Matthew 12, that's when they were uh, disciples were eating grain and so forth. But let's go back to Matthew 9, for example. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, that's after uh, Matthew is called and Jesus is at a feast. He's eating, right? He's eating with uh, uh, 
these uh, these Jews, and also it says uh, sinners as well, and they're all there. And then these Pharisees, these religious leaders, these spiritual leaders, they question Jesus' disciples, and Jesus responds, and Jesus talks about that he's a physician to the sick. It's appropriate for him to be a physician. That They were sinners there, and Jesus was talking to them. But the Pharisees looked at this with a very critical eye of what Jesus was doing. And notice what Jesus says to them. Jesus responded by saying, you go and you learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Remember that? Matthew chapter 9. He said, Jesus responded, go and learn what this means. I underline that because I want you to get this. Jesus tells them, you go and learn what this means. I want you to learn it. You go and learn what this means. It's going to crop back up in Matthew 12. And we want to look at that in just a minute. But where is that, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? That's in the book of Hosea, chapter 6. So let's go and learn what that means. I, I wanted to do that. So Israel and Judah's love to God was like a morning dew, it says in verse 4. That goes away very early. Their love to God was very, just, it's like a dew in the morning. I think when I got up here this morning, there was dew out here, or like a, a fog. You saw someone on the field, especially when I drove through Paris. And I'm sure that's kind of evaporated and gone by now. God's people's love toward God was just very temporary. It was very just, you know, external in a sense. It was there, then it was gone, like the morning dew. And then it goes on to say, in verse 6, I desire a steadfast love and loyalty more than external acts of sacrifice, is what he's talking about in verse 6. And different translations will have this differently. If you notice in New Testament, Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the old Bible. But what we have though is if you look at the text is God's love, Judah's love toward God or God's people's love toward God would go away quickly. And God says, I want a steadfast love. A love that will not go away quickly. I want a loyalty, certain translations will have. God wanted something more deep and lasting toward Him. More than just external acts of sacrifice. Which we know the Pharisees so were very good because they created a lots of things to do. And then he goes on in verse 7. He says, they had dealt faithlessly with God and they had transgressed the covenant. God says, hey, you don't love me, you, you break faith with me, and you break my covenant. See, that's what they were going on. These, in the Old Testament, it was very uh, just superficial. And, and Jesus is bringing their attention to that. And also the religious leaders in Hosea 6, they would lie and wait in order to find something wrong with people or do, to do wrong to people. They was actually shedding blood and so forth in Hosea 6. So Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you go and learn what this means. They and we as well, we need to understand that God wants better. God wants us to have a sincere, devoted love to Him that will not break faith with Him, that will not transgress His covenant, as Hosea says, but will do exactly what He says. And doing what He says shows us that we love others as well and are mercy and compassionate toward others. God desires and deserves our steadfast love without proper love towards God and others. Our external acts are meaningless, brethren. It's got to be from the heart that we actually love people, love God, and to do what He says. And so Matthew 12 or 7 now, as that's when the disciples are going to the grain. Notice this, the spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, once again exhibit these hearts without love. They were looking with very critical eyes. They were lying in wait to find fault with Jesus so they could accuse him. 
And Jesus responded by saying, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Notice that. What did Matthew 9 say? You go learn what this means. And now he said, If you had learned what this means, or if you, if you know what this means. See, it's almost as if Jesus said, You go learn it. And you didn't learn it, Landon. God wants a love toward him and a, and, and, and a, and a uh, very merciful and attitude toward us. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And what we know from Matthew chapter 12, the disciples are innocent. Jesus clearly says that in verse 7. And the disciples' actions were not a violation of the law. Let's make that clear. They're not a violation of the law. But didn't they eat on the Sabbath? Yes. But that was not forbidden. If you look at Sabbath observances from former times, when you examine them, it was no servile work of any kind was forbidden on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was to be a day of rest. The labors of one's occupation and business pursuits were not to be engaged in, as those who formed in various trades and building the temple. Also, we can see, uh, for example, it would have been wrong for the disciples to harvest the grain in bundles and take it to the marketplace. If it's an act of your work, picking up, going and selling, and Nehemiah illustrates that for us in Nehemiah chapter 13. It says, I saw in Judah people treading the winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys with also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought to Jerusalem to the, on the Sabbath day. And I warned them not on, on the day when they sowed the food. Then verse 17, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath? See, they profaned the Sabbath when they were working their normal work and engaging in commerce as they were doing. That was what was forbidding, forbidden under the Sabbath law. For example, it would have been wrong for the disciples to harvest grain in bundles and take it to trade, as we said. And so, but merely taking the care of personal needs, such as bathing, drinking, and eating, even taking care of livestock, was not forbidden on the Sabbath day. That was not forbidden. In Exodus 16.25, Moses says, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord. They were to eat on that day. See, the disciples did nothing wrong. Disciples did not violate the Sabbath law as God intended, but only the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, their man-made restrictions that they had put up. And that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, you, should, you have this critical eye. You need to have mercy toward people. Instead of holding them to your standards, you're being a hypocrite. They did not violate God's law, however. Sadly, these Pharisees did not have the steadfast love that God desires because they had the heart that would accuse the very innocent. Okay, so let's go on. Jesus and, uh, would show the Pharisees' hypocrisy. They claimed taking a grain and rubbing it in their hands, as Luke 6 1 gives us more detail, is laborious enough to violate the Sabbath. That's not true. So. And Jesus points out, if so, their own priests offering up unlawful, or were up offering up unlawful sacrifices that they were commanded to in Numbers on the Sabbath day, and they would have certainly profaned it according to the Pharisees' definition. However, the Sabbath law itself makes allowances for what the priests were doing, their actions, therefore the priests are blameless, and now so were Jesus' disciples. They were blameless. So let's get to question. Can we override what God says based on Matthew 12? I think some erroneously say the disciples violated the Sabbath. But their actions were not wrong because the law was set aside for a compassionate act. Hope you understand. They did not violate God's law. They violated the pharisaical uh, restrictions, uh, man-made restrictions. And they were losing mercy and compassion, all those things that Jesus so desperately wants us to understand. 
they incorrectly conclude that we can set aside a command of God today for a merciful reason. You say, Troy, why are we going on to all this? Here's why. I've been exposed to two things over the last little bit on this very thing. Let me ask you a question. Can we set aside the teaching that the collection is for the saints and the use, uh, and the use of treasury to support any compassionate work? Because what happened, Jim? I was preaching somewhere, and I made the comment. I just read 1 Corinthians 16. You know, the collection is for, when we talk about benevolence, what we use the money for is for the saints. That's all I said. You know, to that effect. And guess what? Someone took issue. Said, no, Matthew 12 says you need to be compassionate. Therefore, it goes beyond. Therefore, we can use it for non saints, etc. Really? Okay. Can we support animal rescue agencies from the treasury? Be consistent, can we? After all, Matthew 12, verse 11 teaches us it's okay to lift your sheep out of the pit on the Sabbath. See, brother, if we look at Scripture in such a way, then it's a shifting sand. Nothing means anything. We can override or set aside anything. And I just don't believe that's the case. Can we set aside to teach on a marriage, divorce, and remarriage based upon compassion? I tell you what, it breaks my heart when I see somebody who has transgressed what God has stated. And they find, them in a set, find themselves in a circumstances where they have to stay single. They want to have, be married. They want to have children. They want to have the same things that I'm enjoying. And I tell you, it breaks my heart for those individuals. But can I look at the individual? If they, in their circumstances, explain that I do not have a right to because I've been married. We did, I did not put them away for fornication and, or whatever. But nevertheless, I, I want to get married. I want to be in a situation. Can I look at them and say, no, no, I, I have compassion towards you. I want you to override what, or set aside what God says here because really that's what we can do. Can I say that? Well, I'll tell you, I just, about within the last two weeks, I heard a brethren make this very argument that yes, we can set aside God's law of marriage. Yeah, it is wrong, but we can set aside because a greater law of compassion is involved here. Can we support unlawful marriages and homosexual unions? After all, Matthew 12, verse 7 teaches us to have mercy and not sacrifice. Can we? I don't think so. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 19, Therefore, whosoever sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So that was our three areas of focus, and I'm going to leave off with uh, talking about our Lord and Savior. How did Jesus look at Scripture? First of all, in John 10, 34, we learned the Jews were accusing Jesus of blasphemy on this occasion because they said Jesus made himself God. And what Jesus did so cleverly is he went to Psalm chapter 82, verse 6, and Jesus refutes their false charge by taking them to that passage where in that context it says, you are all gods. And so the point that Jesus is making is Jesus uh, continues to say, rather, uh, if you called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture could not be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? See, they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy. You're calling yourself God. Jesus goes back to Psalms and Jesus 
quotes Psalms to him, and he says, listen, what is Psalms talking about? Psalms, Jesus could refute the false charge by arguing that the Scripture uses the word God in the context of Psalms and applied it to people in authority, and Jesus was one in authority because God had sent him, therefore Jesus could call himself God. Jesus using the Scripture in a very technical way. Therefore, it could be applied to them. It could be applied to others in similar offices. And so the necessary conclusion is that it was applicable to Jesus. Jesus is using Scripture in a very technical way to show that he was not blaspheming. And he also, in that text in John 10, 35, says a Scripture could not be broken. If I can impress upon all of us, the Scripture cannot be broken. It means what it means, and it says what it says. And the authority of the Scripture is final. It cannot be set aside. It is so absolute that Jesus shows us that we can have confidence to answer a question using the use of a single word. We can, it is so... We can, we can hang our hat on it. Young people, you know what that means, hang your hat on it? That's kind of more of an older person, I think. We, you can hang your hat on it. In Mark 12, 8, the Sadducees on this occasion were questioning Jesus in regards to the resurrection. And you all remember what that he did there? He said, God spoke to him, uh, to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, I am, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, and you are quite wrong. Jesus could refute their false doctrine by isolating on the present tense of the little word am. Jesus didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, or I will be the God of Abraham. He said, I am, and am is that they are in existence. I am the God of the living. So once again, the authority of the Scriptures is final. It cannot be set aside. It is so absolute that Jesus shows us that we can have confidence to help people by showing them that they are wrong or misguided by the use of a tense of a verb. It is that technical and precise God's Word is. Jesus does in fact teach us by use of Scripture uh, that we, even the very smallest parts, the jot and tittle, would be fulfilled. Again, the word used, tenses of verbs, the plurality of the word, Paul would make it to seeds, not as a many. Remember in Galatians? Paul would argue over the tense or the plurality of a word. It's so absolute we can have with all confidence answer questions and refute false teaching. Brother, if we can undermine scripture so easily by those three things that very focus, we wouldn't have a leg to stand on to show anybody anything. It'd be shifting sand. It could be whatever we want it to be, override this, or no, it doesn't mean that. But God's Word cannot be handled that way. God's Word cannot be broken. And we must emulate Jesus' view, the absolute authoritative nature of the written Word. And again, if not, we will be susceptible to many false teachings. So as we, and you say, man, I'm getting hungry. Troy, hurry up. Give me about two minutes more. Error is presented. Error is believed. Error is exposed to be false. And error is revived. And like Baal worship, attacks on how to write proper Bible authority has been presented by people. It's believed by people. And thanks be to God, it is exposed to be false. That's not the right way. Yet, be on guard that it will be revived. And we must be on guard. Thank you.